this morning from Ezekiel chapters 4 and 5. If you'd like to find it in your own Bible or on your device, please take the time to do that. So Ezekiel chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now son of man, take a block of clay, put it in front of you and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it, erect siege works against it, build a ramp up to it, set up camps against it, and put battering rams around it. Then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and turn your face toward it. It will be under siege, and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the people of Israel. Then lie on your left side, and put the sin of the people of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So, for 390 days, you will bear the sin of the people of Israel. After you've finished this, lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the people of Judah. I have assigned you 40 days, a day for each year. Turn your face toward the siege of Jerusalem and with bared arm prophesy against her. I will tie you up with ropes so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have finished the days of your siege. Take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt. Put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. Weigh out 20 shekels of food to eat each day and eat it at set times. Also, measure out a sixth of a hin of water and drink it at set times. Eat the food as you would a loaf of barley bread. Bake it in the sight of the people using human excrement for fuel. The Lord said, in this way, the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I will drive them. Then I said, not so, sovereign Lord, I have never defiled myself. From my youth until now, I have never eaten anything found dead or torn by wild animals. No impure meat has ever entered my mouth. Very well, he said. I will let you bake your bread over cow dung instead of human excrement. He then said to me, Son of man, I'm about to cut off the food supply in Jerusalem. The people will eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water in despair, for food and water will be scarce. They will be appalled at the sight of each other and will waste away because of their sin. Now, son of man... Take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor to shave your head and your beard. Then take a set of scales and divide up the hair. When the days of your siege come to an end, burn a third of the hair inside the city. Take a third and strike it with the sword all around the city. And scatter a third to the wind. For I will pursue them with drawn sword. But take a few hairs and tuck them away in the folds of your garment. Again, take a few of these and throw them into the fire and burn them up. The fire will spread there to all Israel. 
This, <clears throat> this is what the Sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of the nations with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. You have been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. Because of all your detestable idols, I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. Therefore, in your midst, parents will eat their children and children will eat their parents. I will inflict punishment on you and will scatter all your survivors to the winds. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your vile images and detestable practices, I myself will shave you. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. A third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine inside you. A third will fall by the sword outside your walls. And a third I will scatter to the winds and pursue with drawn sword. Then my anger will cease and my wrath against them will subside and I will be avenged. And when I have spent my wrath on them, they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, greetings to you in live stream land. Pretty cheery stuff, hey? I'm going to ask you if you've closed your Bible down or shut down your device to open it up again because you will be... Um, we will be referring to it throughout. And if you've gotten out of the habit of bringing your Bible or even bothering to open it during um, the Bible reading and the sermon, I really would encourage you to have it open. It's the best habit to have, I think. Um, you can do that while I pray for us now and then we'll get underway. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for these words, difficult though they are to hear and perhaps also to understand, but uh, your truth lies within, so please help us to give our attention to it and our willingness to change in response. Amen. Amen. I wonder if uh, you can pinpoint the strangest thing somebody has asked you to do in your life. Uh, it might have been from a boss or from a family member. Perhaps it was a dare from a friend. I have a, a vivid early memory from when I lived in Brisbane. So I must have been in Kidney, aged five. And I gather that our class was doing a production of famous nursery rhymes. And I had been kind of allocated to the three blind mice nursery rhyme. If you can't remember how it goes, it goes like this. Three blind mice, three blind mice, see how they run, see how they run. They all ran after the farmer's wife, cut off their tails with a carving knife. Did you ever see such a sight in your life as three blind mice? Well, I had been selected as the third blind mouse, the one closest to the carving knife. And my recollection is being terrified. I hated the rehearsals. I hated running around on stage, freaking out about the farmer's knife. There was a reprieve one day where the kid who had played second mouse was sick, so I got to move up in position 
you know, a bit of breathing room. But the next day, dog on it, she got better, and I returned closer to the blade. It struck me as um, odd to terrorise kindy kids with these horrific nursery rhymes. Like, what a strange way to start your school career. And uh, I've never since enjoyed acting or drama or performance or any of that sort of thing. Now, today in our second instalment of our Ezekiel series, we zoom in from that kind of cosmic view of God's majesty, his holiness, his above and beyondness uh, that we looked at last week, to the call of Ezekiel, the man after whom the book is named. And we see God ask Ezekiel to do some very strange things. And if you thought the vision of God that we saw last week was you know, intriguing or beguiling, well, that is mirrored by what he requires of Ezekiel as he brings God's message to the people. So first things first, let's open our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. And we read this, Ezekiel speaking, In my 30th year, in the fourth month, fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, that's in Babylon, The heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. It was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, son of Buzi, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. Okay, so even in these opening few verses, we discover three aspects to Ezekiel's ministry. He's this visionary who sees grand visions of God that we thought about last week. He is a priest who at the, uh, the age of 30 would have been excited. You know, he's just completed his lengthy priestly training, ready to commence service in the temple in Jerusalem. And yet he finds himself deported uh, to Babylon along with the rest of the best and the brightest from the land of Israel. So he's a visionary, he's a priest, and he's also a prophet. The word of the Lord came to him. And so as we open um, chapter 2, so flick across or scroll down to that, we're not surprised to read this, chapter 2, verse 1. He, that is this uh, incredible Lord above, beyond, near, far, said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet, and I will speak to you. And as he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, and whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. So friends, I think you can start to build a bit of a picture of the ministry to which Ezekiel has been called. God will speak to him directly. He is to pass that on to what remains of Israel. Now that is the classic task of the Old Testament prophet. They probably won't listen. They will know that a prophet has been among them. Then towards the end of chapter 2, Ezekiel is given a scroll with words of woe and lament and mourning written on both sides. And he's told to eat it. And when he does, it tastes sweet in his mouth. So the word of the Lord is good even when it contains words of lament and woe. And Ezekiel digests the words of God in preparation to speak it. Now, I should say, he's not altogether happy about this arrangement. And in chapter 2, verse 15, he returns in bitterness and anger to his fellow exiles by the Kabar River in Babylon. And he sits there for seven days, overwhelmed, distraught, in deep distress. Fair enough, I would be too. 
And at the end of that week, God commissions him as a watchman. Hear the words I speak, Ezekiel, pass them on as a warning to the house of Israel. And this is how chapter 3 finishes. Read this with me. But when I speak to you, Ezekiel, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Whoever will listen, let them listen. Whoever will refuse, let them refuse, for they are a rebellious people. So you're starting to understand God's calling of Ezekiel. You get the nature of the difficult task before him. Take my words and speak them to the people with my authority. This is what the sovereign Lord says. So it comes as quite surprising to us when we open chapter 4. You've got that in front of you now. And it starts like this. Now, son of man, take a clay brick and draw. (laughs) And you can really imagine Ezekiel saying, uh, I'm the talker, the speaker, I'm the words guy. You know, the watchman with the message, that's what you asked me to do. But God has insisted, take your block of clay and draw the city of Jerusalem. And in what follows, Ezekiel performs three strange sign acts possibly without a single word being spoken. So we're going to look at each of them briefly and then try to work out what they mean. And uh, it's worth saying it does get a bit weird at this point. So the first sign is there, chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, and he acts out the siege of Jerusalem. First of all, he, he draws a map of the city, maybe some of its distinguishing features, on a clay tablet or brick, kind of a big thing. And then he builds a little model of a siege. You know, he... Um, There'll be a siege ramp and there'll be battering rams and there'll be little enemy uh, tents encamped around it. I guess it would look like one of those um, dioramas that you see at the War Memorial in Canberra. Uh, It might have looked a little bit like this. And then Ezekiel takes a fry pan, you can see that, like a flat pan, and he sits it between himself and this little model and he faces the city and he besieges it. Now that's the first sign. I suspect these might happen concurrently. So the next part of this kind of first sign, chapter 4, verse 8, Ezekiel lies down. You can see him lying down there on his left side. 390 days, imagine that, bearing the sin of Israel. It's as if he were the scapegoat from Leviticus. You remember when the priests would symbolically transfer the sin of the people onto this goat and then kind of boot it out into the desert as a picture that their sin would be remembered no more, except... Here, Ezekiel stays under the weight of it all for 390 days, a day for each of the year of Israel's sin that God has endured, probably from the time of Solomon's decline right up until the present moment. And then when that is up, like bizarre exercise routine, swap sides for another 40 days, Ezekiel would be lying on his right side, bearing the sin of this exiled generation from Judah one day for each year. And he'll be kind of bound, unable to move sides for the duration of the siege, all 14 months of it. That's all day, each day. I guess he went home at night for 14 months. Like, wow. Second sign act is there, chapter 4, verses 9 to 17. And Ezekiel takes a very meagre supply of basic ingredients. I mean, we're talking probably 200 grams. That's not much, is it? And maybe only 600 mils of water. That's his daily food supply, a very meagre amount. Oh, it gets better. He could maybe cook it like a small barley cake. If he cooks it on a fire stoked with human excrement, awesome. So 
tiny meals cooked over human poo, probably his own, as he slowly wastes away. And at this point, Ezekiel's priestly preoccupation with purity prompts him to call out to God in verse 14. I, I've never eaten an unclean thing, so let's not start now. And God responds, okay, we'll use cow manure instead, which I think is meant to be an upgrade. <laughs> Third sign act uh, is there in chapter 5, verse 1 to 4. Ezekiel gets a haircut. Now, I must say, it's been a while since I paid for a haircut. These days, they charge a search fee. Uh, I cut my hair with a set of clippers. It takes about 15 seconds because the clippers are sharp. You see, they are the right tool for the job. But here at Ezekiel 5, he uses a sword to cut his own hair and beard. Now, if you found it hard to imagine lying down on one side every day for 14 months, or hard to envisage eating small cakes cooked over animal dung, perhaps it's easier to imagine Ezekiel hacking away at his own head and face. It's really not going to look like he's just stepped out of a salon, is it? It'd be messy, it'd be bloody, I imagine. Um, obviously, it signifies kind of loss and mourning and humiliation. And because shaving was prohibited for priests, it even further represents Ezekiel shedding his priestly office, all that training of himself. It's just devastating on many levels. And then he takes hair that he's just cut off and he's sort of weighted out and divided into thirds, um, one of which he burns inside the little model of Jerusalem that he's made. Uh, a, a further third that he sort of slices with that sword all around the little model of Jerusalem that he's made. And the final third he just sort of throws up and the wind just kind of scatters it around. And he tucks a few strands into his clothes, but even some of them are going to burn. Now, depending on how you think the timing of all this works, Ezekiel's strange sign acts carry on in the sight of the people in Babylon for well over a year. I mean, everyone would have seen it. Everyone. So if you can't imagine what it would have been like to have been Ezekiel, try to imagine what it would have been like to watch him, an exiled Israelite by the rivers of Babylon. Was it confusing for them? Was it intriguing for them? Was it entertaining, like a little bit of comedy? Had he lost his mind as he slowly lost his bodily strength? Well, what does it all mean? Clearly, it's not performance theatre. It's, it's no three blind mice. Uh, what you have here really is elaborate, sober warning signs. Now, uh, many of you will know that these are the standard British warning signs that you will see when you travel around Britain. Maybe we should also include this one. Uh, he's got hair styled by Ezekiel, doesn't he? Awesome. Uh, just a silly joke. Please don't write an email if you're offended. Okay. Um, now, if you have a look at this, there's nothing disturbing about this. The colours, the colours aren't that disturbing. Um, you know, you've got to watch out for ducks and hedgehogs and frogs. Uh, the only thing that looks mildly worrying is bottom right. And I checked, what is that? And it turns out it's a badger. So other than Boris, the most worrying thing to look out for is badgers. Take a breath. This is what it looks like in Australia. Utter nightmare, right? 
alarming colours, there's snakes, sharks, crocs, spiders, poisonous fish. If you wear um, yellow budgie smugglers, you're going to get eaten by a giant marine stinger. If, if you are watching this from the Northern Hemisphere, don't come down here. I don't know, mate. Just pray for us, okay? Of course, I'm kidding, aren't I? I'm kidding where I shouldn't be kidding. And that's, uh, that's the problem with Australians, isn't it? We, uh, we don't take warning signs seriously. As a general rule, we think they're meant for um, someone else, aren't they? For some other unlucky soul. So if these sign acts from Ezekiel are sober warning signs to a people who would not listen, not just to Ezekiel, but to God for some 400 years, what do they signify? What uh, warning do they supply? And should we take them seriously against our native inclination? Well, in the case of the first one, in which Ezekiel builds that little um, diorama of Jerusalem being besieged, remember it looks like this, it's a clear warning that Jerusalem would be besieged by Babylon. Now that seems obvious, but for those with eyes to see, there's a shocking element to the theatre. For Ezekiel acts out the part of God, who is not inside the city protecting it from the besieging Babylonians. As Ezekiel turns his frowning face towards Jerusalem, it becomes clear that God is on the outside attacking it. Unthinkable, really. It's not just the marauding power of Babylon against Jerusalem. It's God himself waging war against his beloved city. And his time lying on his side, first for 390 days in respect of the whole house of Israel, and then the further kind of 40 days in respect of the exiled generation from Judah, reveals that this siege and destruction of Jerusalem, which took place as a matter of history in the year 587 BC, is the price to be paid for their decades, indeed centuries, of willful sin against God. Ezekiel's paltry diet of uh, you know, basic food and water cooked over manure is not only a signal that when Babylon besieges Jerusalem that food will be scarce and water will run out to the point that people will be appalled at the, at the sight of one another wasting away and perhaps they'll do even worse things to one another. It would also point to those who survived who somehow escaped eating unclean food in foreign lands where they would be carted off as deportees. And the final sign of Ezekiel's haircut, he explains there in chapter 5, verse 12. Read this with me. third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine inside you, Jerusalem. A third will fall by the sword outside your walls and a third I will scatter to the winds and pursue with the drawn sword. And the reason for such calamity to befall the people of God to the point that the holy city of Jerusalem would be destroyed and its inhabitants struck down or driven away is alarmingly clear. 4 verse 4, bear their sin. 4 verse 6, lie down Ezekiel and bear their sin. 4 verse 17, they will waste away because of their sin. In chapter 5, Jerusalem, um, God says, was put in the very centre of the nations to showcase to the nations what a gracious, wise and holy God was the God of Israel. Look at the people of Jerusalem. And then know her God. 
But instead, in verse 6, she's rebelled against God's laws and decrees, even more than the nations around her. Bad influence. Uh, Read chapter 5, verse 7 with me. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Jerusalem, you have been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You've not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Detestable practices, vile idolatry, wide-scale bloodshed and violence, and even child sacrifice to foreign gods. And so a warning of what is to come, siege, famine, conquest, exile. If you have a people that will not listen to the repeated warnings of God, then perhaps you have a people who will only respond to evocative, dramatic signs. Only thing is that it actually sounds like it's too late for the people of Jerusalem, doesn't it? God doesn't appear to be saying to the citizens of that city, hey, um, boys and girls of Jerusalem, this is your last chance. I'm going to count to three. One, two, two and a half, two and three quarters. It actually sounds like the ball is rolling. The action is in motion. The, the judgment cannot be stopped, at least for those who remain in the land of Israel. So Ezekiel's Synax operate as a warning really to those exiles already in Babylon, the foreign country, and perhaps to the, the small remnant who escape the siege and make it to join the other exiles there. After all, they're the ones that can see Ezekiel's kind of bizarre theatrics. And so together these chapters impress upon us that we should turn back to God whilst we can, and also that there is a point in time when the warnings of God solidify into real action. You know what Ezekiel mimicked? Happened in his day, 587 BC to be precise as a matter of history, when what was declared happened, unthinkably perhaps to the city of God, Jerusalem, the place where his presence had always dwelt. Don't you know that God desires repentance? a turning away from our sins and a turning back to himself. That's why he gives us warning after warning after warning. But there comes a time when he must follow through, otherwise it's just hot air, isn't it? Don't you reckon he means his threats as seriously as he means his promises? Well, that's already happened as a matter of history. And so, friends, I think this impresses upon us here in this present day to take the warning of God seriously whilst there is time. You know, in God's gracious goodness, there there is no sin for which forgiveness is not available. And he waits in eager expectation for us to turn from our sins and back to him in faith. You know, it is not too late today. And you have never done too much to receive forgiveness and a clean slate and a fresh start to become the the new person that even Dylan spoke of in that video. You know that's why Jesus came to live among us and die for us. You remember the example of the criminal who hung on the cross next to Jesus. It reminds us that it's not too late and you can never do too much. But that offer remains open only while you live or until Jesus returns, whichever is the earliest. So I just don't recommend putting it off. 
Perhaps you should get yourself along to Alpha on Tuesday night. Perhaps you should do business with God this very day. You know, friends, the the gracious warnings of God to turn back to him and the powerful declaration in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus that God loves us, values us and wants to be with us or to be acted upon. For there will come a time when the warnings cease, the offer is over and judgment awaits. If we will not know him in his compassion, if we will not know him in his mercy, if we will not know him in his patience, if we will not know him in his wisdom, if we will not know him in his loving kindness, and if we refuse to know him in his salvation, then we will know him in his judgment. And I understand that you might say, I don't like the talk of judgment. Can I respectfully say you would like the experience of it even less? Wouldn't it be better to know him in his compassion, in his mercy, in his patience, in his wisdom, in his loving kindness and in his salvation than in his judgment. And so I just beg all of us, please avoid it, heed the warnings and accept the gracious offer of life in Jesus. Many of us here today have been Christians for a long time and I think it's very tempting for us to presume upon the grace of God like the people of Jerusalem did. I mean, they had the land of Israel. They had the the law given to Moses. They had the temple in Jerusalem, bricks and mortar. They had a promise from God that there would always be a king on the throne of David. You know, we have beautifully solid promises of God made even more certain in Christ. And so we might just be tempted to think our waywardness is not that wayward and that God's offense is not that great. And so when we read Ezekiel, we think, ah, oh, I mean, we'd never say it like this, but in the deep attitudes of our hearts, we think, reckon God's overreacting just a bit. I read these words from um, J.C. Ryle. He's um, kind of the first and greatest bishop of Liverpool. This is what he said. We are apt to forget that it does not require great open sins to be sinned in order to ruin a soul forever. We have only to go on hearing without believing, listening without repenting, going to church without going to Christ, and by and by we will find ourselves in hell. Wow, they're pretty strong, aren't they? (laughs) Fighting words. Or actually, are they just really pastorally insightful? As if to say, God's love is tremendous. Jesus' compassion and sacrifice is immense. How could it possibly be that we might respond with indifference or boredom or a protective love of our little sins that's like a fierce protective love of our children? How could it be that we might respond with a growing hardness of heart? It makes no sense. It bears no logic And yet I detect it within my own heart way too often. Is God off here? Is he just overreacting? Perhaps we should ask ourselves, have we calibrated our moral and social compass to the norms of our culture rather than to the true north 
of our great God. And so friends, believers or not, I want to say today, let us turn back to God with soft and repentant hearts in a fitting fear of his just judgment as well as an overflowing delight in his compassion and his mercy, heeding his warnings and embracing his forgiveness. Can I ask you to do that? Indeed, this, pa- uh, this passage is all about warning. Uh, the official title that Nathan gave me, though, is, is The Lord Who Calls. And so, along with warning, it's also about calling. Uh, clearly, it's about the calling of Ezekiel. Poor guy. <laughs> it's hard not to feel sorry for him. Chosen to bring an uncomfortable message in an uncomfortable way for an uncomfortable length of time. With his sign acts, firstly, that lasted for well over a year, but as we read on in the book, through his words for many years afterwards, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Now, none of us have the office of Ezekiel. Uh, None of us can pronounce with that same authority the word of God. None of us have the office of Old Testament uh, prophet or New Testament apostle, but we all have a message, and man, it, it can be uncomfortable to share at times, can't it? And each life here can be a great sign act that points to the integrity and the generosity and the contentment and the kindness and the patience and the forgiveness and the joy and the love of the Lord Jesus. You know, friends, that is our primary calling. It's not to be a prophet or a priest per se, but to mimic the holiness of Christ by living in humble obedience to him. Jerusalem, placed in the very center of the nations, to witness God's greatness to them. You and I, our little lives, placed in our families, our our workplaces, our offices, our schools, our communities, to witness the greatness of God to them in word and in deed. And I think in doing just that, calling and warning kind of collide or they they kiss or I don't know, they somehow come together. As we heed the warnings of God, we will increasingly live out our calling to a witness to him. As we take upon ourselves our primary calling, not as prophet or priest, but as humble Christian who lives in a wholehearted obedience to Christ, our lives will be a warning in the sense of being a wonderful and gracious sign act to others that begs them to turn back to God themselves. When I was five, I hated being asked to be one of the blind mice, especially the third one. I don't imagine Ezekiel loved what he was asked to do, but the God who called Ezekiel to that task calls each of us to turn back to him, rejecting our sinful pasts, loving his son, and living in humble obedience to him in word and deed. If we do that, we will both heed his warning. And we will fulfill his calling. We will know the Lord in salvation. And my strong suspicion is that many others will too. Let's pray. I'm going to give you a minute, a full minute, just to pray to God or do business with him or sit and reflect. You might like to confess, repent. I'd like to reaffirm your trust in him. You've got a full minute, then I'll close for us. So, Heavenly Father, let us uh, heed the warnings 
rejecting our sinful pasts, perhaps even those little private sins that we've secretly loved and turn back to you in both repentance and in great faith. Let us also fulfill our calling that our lives might be a great sign act in both word and deed that point to your greatness and all you've done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.